Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. My first seminary professor once referred to the sacrament of communion as the Reformed altar call. I had no idea what he meant until the first time I attended a Presbyterian worship service. When it was time for the Lord's Supper, the communicants went forward to the table, which was new to me. I was used to having the bread and cup passed out to the seated congregation. That first experience made a huge impression on me. Now, years later, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, and one of the things I love is introducing new people to our distinctive way of celebrating Holy Communion. It is one of the unique things about our church, and in this episode, we'll explain why that is. Well, Pastor Mark, one thing that my wife, Jenny, and I both really appreciated about Grace from the start was communion. And in particular, we were struck by how joyful of an experience that communion is at Grace and continues to be. I wanted to talk about your thoughts on communion kind of generally, specifically why Grace does it the way that it does, and then maybe we could zoom out a little bit and talk about communion, the Lord's Supper, theologically a bit as well. So this will be our communion episode. So first question for you is, what's what's going on in your head as you're thinking about how you want communion to be experienced at Grace? I do think that communion, and specifically the way that we do communion at Grace, is one of those distinctives that when people first worship with us, it kind of stands out. It's not necessarily communion the way you're used to doing it. And so there are a couple of aspects to that. I think we could talk about uh, the frequency of it. You know, we do it every week. Uh, Every Lord's Day worship service culminates in the Lord's Supper. The way that we do it is also different as well. I think a lot of people are accustomed to remaining in their seats and having the elements distributed to them as they sit But at Grace, we come forward to the table and receive those elements at the table. That's a little bit different. I think it's also different for people, as you say, the the atmosphere, because a lot of us are accustomed to a communion service having a very serious, sober, um, even, you might say, morbidly introspective focus. I remember communion services I've attended where the the tone was was almost funereal. <laughs> but we treat communion in a much more celebratory way. We see it much more in light of the eschatological feast that is to come than a sort of, you know, somber occasion. And so that changes the atmosphere of it. You know, we come forward, but we come forward singing and celebrating as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so I think all of those things are, are interesting, and they're all deliberate choices that we've made as a church. Some of those things reflect the fact that we are a Reformed church, a, a Presbyterian church. 
Others, though, are distinctive choices that we make at grace. They're not necessarily the way that every PCA church would do communion, but they are the way that that we do it. And and we have kind of our reasons for (laughs) why we do it the way we do it. But, But all of it has an intention behind it. Why do you think it is that communion has become sort of a somber piece of the liturgy in, in the church broadly? I, I, I honestly don't really know. I, I think it, it's probably related to this idea of coming to the table worthily, you know, not unworthily, like Paul yes. warns. Is yes. that the main thing? I, I think that's definitely it, that, that we have a responsibility to fence the table, Right, that there are warnings that are associated with partaking unworthily. And because of that, there is often an emphasis on that idea of, um, you know, confessing your sin, being able to participate wholeheartedly. The difference, though, is really a question of when those things happen. So at Grace, we do have a time of introspection, of, of self-examination and confession of sin, it's already happened earlier in the service. So by the time we come to the, the Lord's Supper at the end of that service, we've already done those things. We've already had that time of self-examination. Yeah. And so while I will frequently repeat those warnings of Paul and kind of explain like, like who should come forward, you know, who is the table for. We do fence the table in that sense. But by the time we've arrived at the table, all of our, our, you know, examination has happened so that we can participate joyously in this sacrament. And so I don't think it's wrong to have a communion service that has that um, sober-minded quality to it, right? I think especially if you were celebrating communion infrequently, the way that many churches do now, it might make sense because it's an out-of-the-ordinary thing to place an emphasis on that need for special examination. But when it's actually built into the fabric of your weekly service, when every Sunday morning worship service is a communion service, all of those needs are being met throughout the service, not just in a communion service that's sort of supplemental mm-hmm. to the regular liturgy, if that makes sense. And so it, it, all of the things you're accustomed to seeing happen in a communion service, certainly all the things that need to happen from our uh, standpoint of our, our you know, church order, those things happen it's just that they're distributed throughout the liturgy. They're not all right in the moment of communion. Yeah. Right. So it's not like you're overlooking the warnings Correct. or the need for repentance and all of that. It's right. just that it's sort of built into the, the worship service. Why the the coming forward? You know, why, why do some churches have communion in the pews while we insist on going to the table? Traditionally, the way that Reformed churches did communion, and this is the way that they they did it in Geneva, was parties of people would come forward and be seated at the table at the front or even at multiple tables. So you can find um, etchings and, and artwork that depicts what communion looked like in Reformed churches. 
and it has kind of an unusual look to it where you, there's a bunch of people sitting at the front of a church around a table and and kind of you're, you're doing almost uh, you know communion in, in sittings in, in waves as it were and there's even really fascinating descriptions from I think it's a Venetian ambassador describing the what he perceived as the chaos of communion in Geneva and he describes all these jugs of wine under the table for <laughs> refilling classes and things and uh we don't go to the, quite that extent. You know, we, for one thing, we don't have the room in, in our sanctuary to do it that way. But, but at least symbolically, we're trying to preserve some of that. So we come forward to the table where the elements are and you receive those elements at that table and consume them at the table, at least in theory. And so at least the symbolism of that way of doing it is honored. Mm. I think there's a value too, just practically speaking, in the fact that we come forward. That, that pictures something as well, that Christ has called us out of the world to himself. And so that movement from, you know, where we're all seated in the sanctuary and it's, you know, believers and, and Lord willing, unbelievers sitting side by side. At the moment of communion, those who are in Christ are called forward to, to join him at the table and commune with him. Practically speaking, what that means is that we're not sending the elements out in sort of a like self-serve way where, where anybody can just grab what they want uh, you're actually going forward, you're presenting yourself as a believer in Christ who's met the criteria that's already been you know, proclaimed, and now an elder of the church is there to give you the elements so that, in theory, if you were not a worthy partaker, perhaps you were subject to church discipline or something like that, it would be possible to, to say, no, no, you're, you're not able to do this. In fact, Speaking of old artwork, there's a, a wonderful old uh, <laughs> engraving of Calvin standing before the table, uh, preventing the the libertines from rushing forward and helping themselves to communion. And they they have their swords drawn because they've said, you know, they're not going to let him get away with this and they're going to slay him. So communion services could be pretty exciting yeah. in Geneva. We've not had anything quite on on that level, but... But at least in theory, this way of doing it would preserve that ability as well. Hmm. So a lot of different factors go into that. Um, for me, honestly, I, I just think it, it, helps to, it helps to emphasize the participation of the worshiper. Like as you come forward, you are like, you know, out of your seat. You're, you're not in your head you're actually moving forward to yeah. the table, doing this very embodied thing. And I think that's helpful as well. So yeah. I, again, I, I, I would never argue like this is the only right way to do it. Um, there's arguments for all sorts of different ways, I suppose. But, but this is the way that I believe best fits our circumstances and our tradition. Hmm. So, Paul says that communion, the Lord's Supper, is a remembrance of the Lord's death until he comes again. And sometimes we talk about it as a remembrance that way. Sometimes we talk about it as a looking forward, as this mm -hmm. like eschatological feast, where it's more so 
looking to the new creation until he comes again, like it, like it says. So, I mean, which is it, I guess, is the question, you know, sure. should, should I be thinking about Jesus on the cross as I'm taking the elements or should I be thinking about him coming again or, you know, right. I mean, how do you think through that? Right. Well, I mean, the, the specific phrase that Paul uses is discerning the body. And so I, I think in that phrase, you definitely have a focus on the cross mm-hmm on the atoning sacrifice. And so it's always right and appropriate to reflect on Christ's sacrifice on the cross as we participate in communion. However, what we're reflecting on isn't the 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 horror of the cross, it's the good news of the cross. Yeah. It's what the the body and blood of Christ mean for us, the the life that we have through him. And so that's the the interesting combination. You know, if, if you imagine the timeline that we're on here, you might see on, on one end of it, the Last Supper. And on the other end of it, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. And you might tell yourself, we're somewhere in between <laughs> those two things. Yeah. And, and, and part of what we're doing here looks backwards. And part of what we're doing looks forward. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the external trappings are very much of the present. Yeah. And so when we emphasize the eschatological, we're really looking forward to that feast. And we're thinking of our union with Christ and what it will be like to commune with him face to face. When we look backwards, we're thinking about his sacrifice for us. We're thinking about his promises and the way that the the meal that he shared with the apostles before his crucifixion and the meal that he shared on uh, the first Lord's day with those followers on the Emmaus road Mm. are like veiled promises that they are tangible signs of a reality to come. And so I think all of that is there for us to meditate and reflect on as we participate in the sacrament. And so, you know, when you think about Augustine's description of the sacraments as as a visible word, and the, the word has been preached in the sermon, and now you have a, a tangible expression of the word, that really gets to it, the, the, the content of the sacrament is really the cross in all its fullness. Yeah. Well, this kind of brings us to some of the different views of this, the uh, sacraments as well, because or communion, because there, there is a view that maybe the memorialist view I've heard it called, which sees communion as just a time of remembrance only, right. You know, looking back to what Christ did and these, these elements representing his body and blood. And so in that view, when we're taking communion, we're just supposed to remember that. And, and, you know, and that has some kind of effect on us spiritually. Is that the Presbyterian view or how is the Presbyterian view different? What's going on actually when we participate? It's a good question because I think this is one of those widely misunderstood things where the two options that people imagine are, are basically, on the one hand, uh, mere memorialism, that, mm-hmm. that these are, are symbols and nothing else, that the, the bread and the cup are, are just that, 
and they they picture something, but 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 they themselves are just you know symbols. Mm-hmm. And then the alternative is physical presence that in some way the bread turns into the body of Christ and the cup turns into the blood of Christ physically. So neither one of those is the reformed view. It's neither one is, is the view that, that we have of what's happening in communion. We believe in the real presence of Christ in communion, but the, the key is the real spiritual presence. So, the Apostle Paul says that the bread that we eat in communion and the cup that we drink are a participation in the body of Christ and a participation in the blood of Christ. Language like that suggests something more than mere symbolism, right? Symbolism for us as you know, 21st century Americans uh, is empty random signs. Right? We don't see symbols as corresponding to any sort of concrete reality. So when we talk about a symbol, it's almost like saying like it isn't real in itself. Like it just signifies something else. Symbols in scripture are, are full of reality. That the Bible teaches that the physical world is symbolic. You know, that, that there's a sign value to created reality, that it's made the way it is to point to a heavenly reality. And so that should change our view of symbolism entirely. But there's another element here, which is this, that things can be spiritual and also real. <laughs> that, that to say that something is real doesn't necessarily mean that it's physical. And, and, Again, you know, even that distinction between spiritual and physical becomes complex, right? Yeah. Because when we talk about resurrection bodies, they're spiritual bodies, but but they're bodies. And so what does it mean to say you have a spiritual body when we're accustomed to thinking of uh, of spiritual things as being disembodied, hmm. right? So, so there's a lot of mystery and complexity in all of this. And the Reformed tradition is essentially affirming the real presence of Christ, in the elements without explaining how that works. Um, so it's not mere symbolism. Like there's, there's more there than, than symbolism. And on the other hand, in order to explain the, the, the more that's there, we don't have any sort of, uh, we don't have like an Aristotelian explanation, uh, which is what transubstantiation basically is. Mm-hmm. We don't have a, you know, more vague in and around kind of Martin Luther (laughs) explanation for how it works. We have more of a, it's real and it's spiritual and we're not going to try to somehow bring it down to the physical. And and the reason that we're not going to do that is, so in order to affirm Christ's full humanity, you have to affirm like he he possesses a humanity like ours and we believe he continues to possess a humanity like ours and so we don't want to posit anything about the humanity of christ that is like supra or 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 inhuman Mm -hmm. and so once you start thinking of of like a physical human body that is ubiquitous 
that's everywhere that's capable of manifesting like um i get that that you can say but it's a miracle and and, yeah. and that's fine mm-hmm. But it feels like that pushes too much against the humanity of Christ to posit those things about his humanity. It feels safer, uh, more more conservative, I guess you could say, in terms of not tampering with that doctrine to posit something like, like a real spiritual presence. And, and so, as in so many things, I think the Reformed tradition represents a kind of middle way between seeing these things as empty symbolism, which, which really hollows out a lot of the, the way that, that both Jesus and, and Paul speak of these things. And then also trying to explain it in such a way that it, it potentially does violence to uh, core Christological doctrine. And so it, it's sometimes the way we talk about it will sound very, um, Baptist to people, and sometimes the way we talk about it will sound very Roman Catholic to people, but it's neither of those things. Yeah. It's something else. Right. I appreciate that you can just say on a Sunday morning that we're going to participate in the, the body and the, the blood of Christ or you know some, some such language without having to hedge it so much and, and to always say, oh, it's just spiritual, right. you know. Um, so allowing for some of that mystery while at the same time not taking it too far. A long time ago, someone asked me this question about the sacraments. Um, it was after a church service. She said, I'm, I'm curious. It seems to me like whenever we perform the sacraments, we do baptism and we do the Lord's Supper, we spend a lot of time explaining what they're not and not a lot of time explaining what they are. <laughs> and that really hit home to me. I, I wasn't a pastor at that time, but I took that on board and I've always tried to emphasize what the sacraments are and not get caught up in trying to, to explain what they're not. Um, as a result, you know, it's possible for people to visit grace and witness the administration of the sacraments and misunderstand what's going on because it isn't being overexplained from a sort of negative point of view. You know, we're not necessarily... Uh, putting a lot of disclaimers out there. Uh, and I think some people would say, but you should, like you, you should have all of these, you know, warnings and disclaimers <laughs> and explanations so it's not misunderstood. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the beauty of the frequent celebration of Lord's Supper is the way in which those misunderstandings are overcome through familiarity, not through... Uh, warning if that makes sense that that it's it's not that we explain it so heavily in advance that you couldn't possibly misunderstand it's that it's something so familiar that you come to understand what it is through through observation and use so again i i think the same concerns are addressed it's just they're addressed in a different way right okay well i've got another question which is if we're going to say that Christ is really, truly, spiritually present, is that a unique presence that wasn't there before communion? Is it the same presence but in a, in a more magnified sense? You know, I've always kind of wondered that because as I'm listening to the gospel preached, I assume that you know, the Spirit is working within me, that Christ right. is 
God is present among us as we're singing songs and all of that. So what's going on at communion that's different? So I think this highlights one of the difficulties of, of language of presence. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about an omnipresent God, how can you also talk about his a special presence in any one sort of situation, right? And I think that's that's a it's a good question to ask because we do that. You know, we we affirm on the one hand that God is present everywhere, and then on the other hand, we're constantly speaking as if we're asking him to come, yeah, and be present. You know, and I'll do this in church uh, every week. Uh, pray that the Spirit will fill this place and these people as if he's not already doing that. So it's important to, to recognize that, that what we're talking about is not God's absence and then presence. Mm -hmm. We're really talking about benefits to the receiver. So the, the presence is especially felt through the sacrament that Christ has instituted. Like the benefits that that sacrament pictures are really offered in it to worthy receivers. And so they are especially present to the faithful through this sacrament. Um, that's the sense in which I think we can speak of the presence in a, in a special way. So if you stopped taking the, the elements, you would really miss out on something. Yes. Yes. So in Sunday school recently, we, uh, we wrapped up actually the Sunday school season by looking at chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession, which is on the perseverance of the saints. And in the third section, it talks about uh, what we used to call when I was a Baptist backsliding. Is it possible for a person in a state of grace to fall into grievous sin? And the, and the, Confession says, yes, it is, that that person doesn't fall from the state of grace, but there are consequences to that sin. And one of the things, it, it gives sort of three explanations for how it is that we can fall into grievous sin. One of them is the ever-present temptation of Satan in the world, which isn't going to change. One of them is the presence of continuing corruption in the individual, which again, isn't going to change in this life. But the third one is the neglect of the means for our preservation. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that we lose when we neglect the means of grace, which we have been given. We've talked about the means of grace before. Uh, the standards especially highlight the word the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and prayer as special means of God's grace. And the term we use, ordinary means, like these are ordinarily the way that, that God works, distributes this grace. And so in that sense, if we neglect those things, we deprive ourselves of benefits and blessings if that's true, you can see, you know, the other side of the equation is in order to treat ourselves to these benefits and blessings, we have an interest in experiencing them frequently. Yeah. So we want to hear the preaching of the word regularly. We want to experience the administration of the Lord's Supper regularly. And by participating in those things, we are built up and blessed by God. 
and that gets us back to where we started, which is why this is a an experience of joy, right? It's so different, I think, to come forward expecting to receive grace from the Lord himself at, at the table than, than if I'm just going to kind of get in the right mind and, and try to remember something. It's cool to think about it, joyful to think about it as receiving a gift from God himself. Exactly. And as you can imagine, people receive communion at grace in in all sorts of different states and conditions. And so as we administer the elements, some people receive them, you know, with joy. Some people receive them with tears. Hmm. Some people receive them with with nervousness because they're standing so close to an elder and it's weird. (laughs) But uh, whatever the the kind of outward manifestation, the, the overall atmosphere is one of rejoicing. And so I, I think if you think about the place of communion in the larger worship service, that makes a lot of sense, right? That the structure of our worship has a kind of pattern to it. And we'll often talk about the dialogical character of the liturgy, that it's it's God speaking and his people answering. But there's also another kind of structure that you can see in our service that follows our longing for more grace, more depth, and more community. You know, we have in the first part of our service a real focus on God's grace, where there is a, you know, proclamation of his goodness, a self-examination, confession of sin, and we receive pardon for our sins. And that really does give us a good reminder of his grace. And we conclude that with the uh, a singing of a, a psalm in Thanksgiving. In the central part of our service, we have this emphasis on more depth. You know, this is where the preaching of the word takes place. We go deep into scripture and receive those benefits. But in the last part of our service, the focus is on more community. And that begins with a communal confession of faith where all God's people in one voice attest to what they believe, and then it culminates with that communal celebration of communion, Mm. where we celebrate together our union with Christ. And so you can see a kind of rising action, as it were, in the service, so that we always end on that, that high point of celebrating our union with Christ. Like you hear the gospel proclaimed, and then you act it out in the sacrament and celebrate what it means to be united with him. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.